Hi, welcome to this new episode of the Players' Lounge, the tennis podcast that focuses on the mental aspect of the game. My name is Jennifer Megan. I am a former professional tennis player, and I launched this podcast because I wanted to create a space in which tennis players could find tools and solutions in order to improve their mental skills. But this podcast is not only for tennis players. It is also for parents and coaches whose ambition is to help their kids and players to reach their full potential. If you are a regular listener to the Players' Lounge podcast, thank you so much for your support. If you are new to the podcast, welcome. And at the end of the episode, if you like what you hear, I would really appreciate if you could subscribe, share this episode with a friend or family member, and leave comments, and preferably five stars on Apple Podcasts. If you're not on Apple Podcasts, no worries. You can also listen to this episode on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Acast, Deezer, and many more. Wow. It's been a while. I took a break uh, during the summer, but I didn't stay away from the tennis news. And all I can say is that what a crazy tennis summer it was. I mean, from the from Wimbledon to the Olympics and to this crazy U.S. Open, I mean, we were blessed as tennis fans. And um, I mean, th- this tournament was just crazy. I mean, from the Djokovic run and uh, losing in the final and not making the calendar Grand Slam to... Emma Raducanu's uh, win. I mean, there was a lot going on. And what I want to focus in this uh, episode will be in two parts. In the first part, I really want to answer that question, you know, that question that we hear more and more. Is pressure uh, really a privilege? And to answer this question, I want to focus for this first part of the episode on three players. Novak Djokovic, Naomi Osaka, and Stefanos Tsitsipas. I'll start with Naomi Osaka. I mean, let's just say that since she announced that she was not going to do press at the French Open, it's been quite um, difficult for uh, Osaka. She whizzed her from Wimbledon. She didn't play well at the uh, Olympics, where she had like a lot of pressure, you know, in a in a home uh, country, and she didn't win the U.S. Open in the end. She lost in the third round against, I mean, finalists Leila Fernandez. But let's say that she had quite a disappointed um, summer, and. You know, on top of that, she expressed that she's struggling more and more with the mental health that, you know, she she said, you know, during the, the press conference that she doesn't even know when she's going to play a tennis match, next tennis match, and that she's going to take a break. And I think that there is a lot going on here. And uh, of course, I'm not in Naomi Osaka's head, but I think that there are things that we can um, try just to learn from her and and see how maybe you know the opportunity that you know she can use to to do better. The first thing that uh, I remember from this press conference after a loss in the third round of the U.S. Open was that she said, "When I win, I just feel I feel relief, and when I lose, I feel extreme pain." To me, that that's very like the the key problem. I mean, regardless the result, she she has absolutely no joy being on a tennis court. And uh, when when we look at Naomi Osaka, we we can uh, understand that lately it seems that she's been overwhelmed and that she's kind of lost. And then she she said it openly, which which is really brave to to do. But then it's like 
what, why does she feel this way? Let's try to find answers. Uh, I don't know if you guys watched a documentary on Netflix, but there was a couple of scenes that uh, kind of give us pointers on why she's so confused and so lost lately. There is a scene when she's at the restaurant celebrating a birthday and she asks her mom, so do you think it's enough? Do you think are you proud or uh, do you think we are on track with what you had planned? And that uh, scene is quite odd because at the time of this was filmed, she had already won Grand Slams. She was already a uh, num- she had been already number one in the world. So you, you, you might think that she will feel content with herself, but actually she publicly said that she always felt that she was never good enough. And, and that was the first scene that was a bit like, oh, wow, weird to me. Then there was a second scene when she learned the death of Kobe Bryant, who was one of her mentors. And then she said that she always felt whenever she was asking for advice that she was letting him down, that she felt like a loser because she was not able to live up to his expectations. And I think that's what um, Naomi Osaka is facing. And it's what a lot of uh, tennis players and uh, athletes are facing. It's that when you base your value on external validation, and in that case, what uh, your coach, your parents are going to say, that's when you, you struggle. And for Naomi Osaka, it seems that she is, although that she's, you know, depicted, depicted by a team, a uh, management team as, you know, a girl who's hands on, who has, who handles the business and everything. It seems that the why, the reason why she plays, it's not really hers. Hers. It feels like she's not the engine of a project. And, and that's why she's struggling right now. Uh, she says that she's going to take a break. And, uh, but I think that also what really is important is that she, people said, oh, she needs to find again, you know, why she likes to play tennis. But I think that she needs to find. I, I think that, uh, her parents, uh, had the best intention, you know, when they wanted her to, to become a, ten- a successful tennis player. However, I think that she kind of followed you know, that plan. And she was never, you know, at the at the center of it and the guide of it. And that's something that it's very important when you are an athlete is that, especially a tennis player, it's great to have a team, but you really want to be the chef, the, the chef of your team. And, and I think that's what uh, Osaka needs right now, finding a why, why is she playing tennis? And doesn't matter the reason, but she needs to find something that can make her feel content and willing to go on tennis court and to uh, have an equal self-esteem regardless um, of a result. One person that was very able to do that is Andre Agassi. Andre Agassi had a similar story to Osaka. I mean, uh, he started playing when he was very young, very talented. The father was, you know, uh, the one who wanted his son to become a tennis player. And then uh, he revealed in his book, Open, that he hated tennis most of his life. And he actually chose tennis when he was 27, which might sound crazy because before that, he had already been a Grand Slam winner and uh, number one in the world. So that's a very similar story for, for Osaka. And I think that's something that definitely she needs to do. Uh, like I said, when you take taking a break is a good, um, is a good thing. However, I feel like... Uh, for Osaka, it's, it's, those breaks have not been really productive and actually it had created more anxiety because when you take a break just to be away from tennis 
uh, it's it's just pushes the the issue away. It doesn't mean that it's gonna go away. And um, and when she comes back, there is even more expectations, more questions from the press. So it feels a bit like a vicious circle for her. And I think that when you take a break, you really need to have um, some kind of a plan during the break. You, it's great to be away from tennis. Just put your mind away for a while. That's great. But after that, you know, it's really about what am I going to do when I'm com- when I'm coming back? What is my goal now? What do I want to achieve? What is my real motivation? And these are the things that when, if you are a player or an athlete and you want to take a break from your sport, that's definitely how you should approach it. So that's the, the thing. Uh, a lot of people said that, okay, she needs to have, uh, she's depressed and she has anxiety, which really seems to be the case. I mean, I'm not a psychologist, but from, from what she said, it seems that she's really struggling. And a lot of people say that, okay, she needs professional help. And I think that's um, that's part of solution. And definitely, yes, it would help her to get more perspective. However, I also believe that she needs like a mentor that um, will understands what she's going through. And uh, only athletes with the level of success that she had can help her in that. I mean, former athletes or if people are still in activity and, and want to do it, that's great. But only these people will be really able to relate with, with her because we all here, you know, like making comments, you know, on a couch and, you know, at the bar. But none of us, I mean, most of us, uh, at least I don't, even even though I was a tennis player, we, we cannot understand the level of stress and the level of pressure that she's experiencing at the moment. And only someone with a level of success can definitely be, be that person for her. She had Kobe Bryant, uh, who was really uh, a great guide. But I, I also think that it should be someone who plays individual sport and was able to, you know, to manage to to overcome that. I mean, I, I named Andre Agassi, but they were like, they were also like from different sports. It doesn't have to be tennis, but definitely I think that that would be great to incorporate someone in a team that will be able to to help her with that. Also, that one of the big criticism that comes from um, people against Osaka is that, oh, okay, well, instead of like uh, complaining about your mental health, well, maybe you should stop doing all those, um, you know, outside um, uh, appearances. You should stop, you know, uh, doing all those entrepreneurship stuff. You should stop doing the photo shoots and blah, blah, blah. Okay, well, I think here we need to um, to be a bit to go a bit deeper than this because it's not so much about you know, whether she is doing a sport illustrated cover or she's launching a new cosmetic line. Um, what you need to understand is that when um, when you are an athlete, you, your time is limited, and you definitely want to think about your after career. And we've seen so many players who. Uh, made a lot of money and then finished with nothing, and um, and especially when you come from a from a not so privileged background, you definitely want to make sure that you know, like just to speak to speak a, a bit slang, you want to secure the bag. And I think for Osaka, she said it like in a documentary. She said that uh, she's mostly playing because she wants her mom to stop working, that she she saw a mom working on three different jobs just so she could play tennis. So it it seems that it was a very traumatic experience for her that that seeing that, okay, growing up, uh, I don't know if they were like super poor, but like growing up with not so much money, I think it's something that 
is still um, in, you know, in, in her mind and that she thinks that a, a lot. So when people think that she just wants the fame, I don't think that's what it is. I think that she understands that, okay, she wants to, to secure an after career. She wants to make sure that a family is okay, that uh, she will have financial freedom. And, and that sound, I, I, I mean, I'm, it's just my hypothesis, but I really believe that it's not just because, okay, she wants to leave the fame. I mean, she, she clearly is an introvert. She doesn't like attention. But I think that she's doing that because, again, she, she's not doing that for herself. And that's maybe the issue. She's always looking for this external validation, making sure everything is okay but herself. So this whole, like, uh, entrepreneurship, yes, is to secure uh, after career, but it's also for making sure a family is okay. That's really my uh, observation. So when people say, okay, well, she should stop doing that, I don't think it's going to happen until she understands that she's fine that she's going to be okay. And and sometimes, you know, for especially for professional athletes, when they become rich at a very young age, you don't necessarily have that financial literacy and, and that financial peace of mind. And then you want to go, 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 make sure that you, you save as much money as possible. So that's, uh, that's it for Osaka. I really hope that she uh, gets well. I really hope that uh, she will be fine. And because uh, I really like this player and, and she's a great um person for for the game moving on to the greek god uh, stephanos titsipas so it's been a very rough summer i would say a cruel cruel summer for uh, uh, stephanos titsipas i mean definitely after his loss in final of french open it seems that he's been really struggling i mean early loss in wimbledon uh, okay against a a very good uh, francis tiafo but still i mean it was still a match that he could he could have won and <clears throat> excuse me, and and I I think that yeah, it's been it's been quite difficult. And then we had those uh, we had these controversies uh, about you know those infamous toilet breaks. I don't want to go too much deep into it because it's been heavily discussed on social media and everywhere actually. But I kind of want to um, you know discuss what's been happening with them and what seems according to my, you know, humble opinion, the problem. So there was this controversy first about uh, on-court coaching in the summer when Tsipa said that, well, everyone can afford to have a coach and, and on-court coaching should be uh, happening. And it was really very odd because people were saying, okay, he's like number number five, number third in the world. I mean, does he really need his dad, you know, by his side? It was kind of weird. So, and... And they had like a bit feud with some players who said, okay, well, not, not everyone can afford it. And it seemed to be a bit insensitive to that. Then there were the toilet breaks. So toilet breaks, I mean, for if you're a tennis fan, you know what happened. Uh, for those who don't, who don't know, were living under a rock. I mean, there were those, um, you know, first in Cincinnati against um, Alexander Zverev when he left the court for a while and I think it was seven minutes and, and he took his bag and then Zverev accused him of taking his phone and then the dad was texting him like what to do. I mean, it doesn't really matter. I don't know if it's true and nobody can know and it, I don't think it's really the issue here. Then he did that again uh, at the US Open against Andy Murray and Andy Murray was so pissed off because, you know, it was right after the fourth set and he did it against Manarino and he did it against um, Alcaraz as well so people were pissed off because it was taking so much time and again when people say okay it's a way to break the rhythm for me it's kind of a 
way to show vulnerability from Titsipas because, again, it seems that what he's been looking for since he lost this final at the French Open are external things, external solutions. Having, you know, wanting so bad to have uh, uh, his dad or any or someone else by his side is, is kind of, to me, uh, a confession that you cannot find solutions by yourself, which is a bit strange when you are number third in the world because, you, I mean, obviously, Tsipas is an excellent player and is a great champion. So it, this was a bit odd. Uh, again, the toilet breaks incident, I, I want to talk about it in a more uh, high-handled it. High handled, and I think this was the major mistake for him. Um, again, you know, this podcast is about um, mental mental training, but it's also about how to handle things and, and communication uh, for athletes. I think it's also very important. So the whole communication around high handle toilet breaks, I think, was what made fans even more pissed off and and what and had it pressure to him that was not necessary uh so first of all when he won against murray he said that well for him there is nothing wrong that everything is okay and he's right i mean technically there's no time limit when you know you take a uh, toilet breaks but if we are being fair it's it's you know taking about eight minutes between a set is a bit shitty but that's just my opinion. But anyway, but he's right. So the way he said it was kind of, okay, I, I'm not doing anything wrong. Um, I'm, everything is perfectly fine. So which created even more tension. And then uh, you, you, and then he came back, I think, a couple of matches after that, which to me was kind of crazy watching it because I don't know who's holding that. And I don't know who advised him to continue to, to talk about this when you should have you should have just stopped talking about it and and say okay let me just talk about tennis but instead i think his ego got the best of him and then he said oh by the way i remember watching the game in 2012 when murray played against djokovic and he took a break and uh could you guys check how long it took after the fourth set first of all i mean in 2012 um titsipas was i think 14 the match uh, I mean, he lives in Europe, and I remember watching that game, and I think it finished late in the in the night, like 1 or 2 a.m. I don't think that uh, at this age he stayed up until that. Or if he did, okay, great. But I, I, I'm a bit suspicious to that. And then second, um, the person who told him that didn't check how long Murray took, which to me was crazy because if you want to come up with something you know, uh, against the press, you really need to come prepared which he wasn't. And then the journalist told him, well, yes, I checked, and it was like three minutes, which made him look like a fool. It, it basically gave uh, a stick to be bitten, which was kind of weird, but okay. And then you and then you had um, Patrick Moratoglu, who was part of uh, Titipa's team, who came and, um, and he did two uh, comment, uh, comments about this whole toilet break stories. And the first one, I think he was pretty good. You know, it was kind of short. And he said, well, I know, I know Stefanos and, and saying that he's a cheater is, is very crazy when you know him and, and definitely it's not that. And then, but that's okay. And then he said, okay, that the toilets break, uh, there's no definite rules. And to me, that was, yeah, that, that was okay. And it was kind of legit from someone from his team to say that. 
But I, I, because, because people on social came for him. They were saying, what do you think about that? How can you support this? So of course he had to answer. Uh, but at the same, but then he went again and he did another one when he talked for, I don't know, like five, 10 minutes about this whole thing. And then he came with like an argument, like he was Titipa's lawyer. And again, that drew uh, negative attention. And I don't know who told him, hey, Patrick, do that. That's a great idea. I really don't think he was advised because that, that, was, that was really bad. People say that's not his place to talk. Um, he's just like looking for attention. And it just uh, basically proved that uh, Tsitsipas goes there, not just to go to the toilet, but because he wants to disrupt his um, opponent. So that, that was like, in terms of communication, I mean, no, no, it's not about really mental health, but what definitely did added more pressure on Tsitsipas. And then when he played against uh, Alcaraz at the, in the third round, when he went to the bathroom, again, uh, he knew that people were going to like count how many minutes. I mean, to be honest with you, I literally took out my phone and starting like timing how long he, he went. And it took about four minutes. And uh, But what happened is that Alcaraz left the court as well, which, which was very interesting because it was kind of a way to say, okay, look, I'm not going to stay alone here in that 23,000 uh, center. I don't know how many people I are to ask, but stadium. But anyway, I'm not going to stay here by myself. I'm going to go as well. And when we look at the team of Alcaraz, when Juan Carlos Ferreo is like coaching him, so basically you have here the experience of a Grand Slam winner, former number one in the world, who prepare that. People start to say, okay, you're going to play against Tsitsipas. If he's, if he's losing, he's going to go outside and you want to do that as well. So you want to disrupt that. And and the fact that he came, that he you know, he came after four minutes, then I'm not even sure that he was able to do what uh, Moratoglu said that he was trying to do when he was going there, which was to reset his mind. I don't think he was even able to do it because basically, maybe, I don't know, I'm not in Tsitsipas' Uh, team, but it seems that he was kind of worried that people would just boo him again. So he, he came back and seemed more agitated than than before. So that's that's for me for Titsipas. I think that he's an excellent player, like such a great champ and amazing to watch. To be honest, but I think that sometimes what what is missing is to kind of check himself and and look for in, internal solutions and kind of analyze what he's doing wrong. And uh, being able to to move on and say, okay, this is what I need to do that to change internally in order to to win, you know, Grand Slams. What am I missing? What are the mental, um, you know, things that I need to improve in order to become a Grand Slam champion? And I think sometimes he's a bit like, oh no, I don't do anything wrong. I'm perfect, kind of type. And it's kind of weird because he's like such a hard worker. I mean, when you see him, you, you can tell the guy is working hard. He's really pushing himself. But I feel like in that territory. You can do better. But again, let's start with the Titsipas hate. I mean, I mean, no one deserves it. Anyway, moving on to Novak Djokovic. So definitely, uh, to me, uh, Djokovic going to win the calendar slam was definitely the, the biggest, was going to be the biggest achievement in sport history. And I said what I said. Because I looked for um, similar situations in sport when I was preparing this episode. 
and I couldn't find any. I mean, of course, you have the when I looked for the biggest uh, upset in sport history. Yes, you had upset from team sport, but in terms of individual sport, the only thing I found that is close to what Djokovic experienced was uh, Mag Tyson loss against Buster Douglas in 1990 when he lost his um, heavyweight uh, champion title after being undefeated, undefeated for five years. That's the only thing that is close. And still, I and then Tyson was able to, to reclaim his title. But still, I don't think that in order to become world champion, you have to win 28 matches like Djokovic had for the calendar slam. So I really think that to me, this was the biggest thing of something that no one had experienced before. But be- before we, we dive in, like, what Djokovic, uh, you know, what were the, for me, the reasons why Djokovic lost this match, let's go back to what he did well. So he had, like, a kind of tense, some difficult summer after Wimbledon. You know, he lost in the semis of the Olympics after, you know, against uh, Zverev, then lost the uh, bronze medal against Kanye Busta. And that uh, was definitely his nemesis because every time you know, Karen Busta is always, you know, in, in uh, Djokovic upset. But, uh, and so that was very difficult because we know how much Djokovic uh, loves to play for, for Serbia. So that was very hard um, to swallow. But again, he recovered very well, took a break, went on vacation, um, kind of got his energy back, surrounded himself with uh, his family and loved ones. Djokovic is really good at that. He knows how to do that, how to um, take breaks and regain energy. That's what I was saying earlier about Osaka, that, okay, she, um, you know, needs to have breaks that really are helping her and not just um, reasons to just stay away from the tennis court. So Djokovic did that extremely well. The, the second thing that he did good was controlling, you know, the his interaction with the media. I mean... From the moment he arrived in New York, people just kept talking about this calendar Grand Slam. And, and you know, at the first, at the press conference before the start of the tournament, he said that, yes, where, where's your motivation? And he said, on, on between 1 to 10, and he said 21. And he, he kind of played the game, yes, I really want to win this Grand Slam. I mean, I, I know what's on the line. He, he played along, and, and he discussed it kind of openly. But, you know, when the tournament started... People just kept talking about it every single match, which was, to be honest, annoying. And Djokovic was kind of like nicely saying, okay, look, guys, we talked about it. I know you guys want to talk about it, but what I really want to focus on is, you know, the next match. And and it's not going to help me to talk about it all the time. I've said everything that was possibly, uh, that what possibly I could say. And people and, and press, the, the journalists were kind of, Yes, yes, you're right. Okay, but what about the calendar Grand Slam? And I thought it was super annoying, to be honest. And um, so that that's, it, it, for me, it was able to control the press really well. But that was until he won the semifinal against Zverev. And something happened to me that I was like, ha, huh, I wish he would have said that. When I watched, I said, mm, I hope this is not going to play against him. So when he, win the, when he won the match against Zverev, he said, you know, um, yes, again, Patrick McEnroe was asking about the calendar slam. And then he said, okay, I know, guys, you know what you want, but there is one more. And then he said that sentence, I'm going to play this match like if it's the last match of my career. When he said that, I was like, ah, 
why did you say that? I, I felt like it was kind of a mistake because subconsciously, I'm pretty sure that this added pressure to him. It had it had some pressure. And and also, you know, beating Zverev, everyone's saying that it was the final. And, and um, I think maybe got that, that also got into his head, like, okay, Zverev was the big obstacle because uh, Zverev had played, like, incredible tennis all summer. And... Um, we will never know, of course, but perhaps, although Medvedev is such a great player, maybe Djokovic kind of felt that like, okay, I did the you know the the hardest beating Zverev in the semis. So that was to me the first mistake that he made, saying that statement. Oh, this is gonna be the most important match of my game. We know it was gonna be the most important match of the game, but that added a bit of pressure. So that something that I think he could have done differently. Then I'm going to say something that some people are going to think I'm crazy, but I'm really going to stand by it. Djokovic, um, you know, along the years, a lot of people say that, okay, what he wants is the love of the crowd. And, you know, he wants people to love him like they love uh, Federer and Nadal. Yes. But what I think is that when you are um, a champion, you know, I like Djokovic, Nadal, Federer, all those kind of stuff. One of the things that you do really well is is you control pretty much everything. You anticipate, you prepare yourself in a way you take um, as many information as possible. So when you come on the court, you don't really have to think about those things because you're able to deal with them. And then you you are, and then the the unknown you can deal with this more more fluidly. What happened here is that there was one unknown factor. And I think that Djokovic didn't anticipate was the crowd. The crowd, especially in New York, uh, has been famous for always being against Djokovic, uh, especially when he plays against Federer, or even when he was playing against Del Potro, all those kind of stuff. They will they tend to be against him every time. And I think that in the way he prepared himself, Djokovic, I mean, and he said that he said, "Oh, I didn't know what to expect from the crowd, but I'm sure that he expected them to be against them and to root heavily for Medvedev." And one of the biggest strengths of Djokovic, if not his biggest strength, is to play against adversity. He takes um, one of his primary sources of energy is that he knows how to turn that negative energy that he re- that he receives um, into something into a fuel that motivates him, that transcends him to play his best tennis. But in that case, and I was shocked too, the crowd was waiting for him. From the very beginning, it was clear that the New York's fan, the New York fans were rooting for Joko. And I think that that kind of distracted him and he was not able to deal with it. Yes, of course he cried and, and he was overwhelmed by it. But I really think that, and that's that. Some people are gonna say, "Okay, that's crazy. He didn't. He lost because the crown was rooting for him." Well, I'm not saying that because, of course, in the second part of this episode, we will talk about Medvedev uh, and give and give him the full credit that he deserves. But I really believe that um, the support from the crowd partly took his energy away. And I'm going to stand that. And, and I think that, and I will maybe do an episode in terms of, we'll talk about how you find your source, your sources of energy. And I think that, yes, this is, this is a concept that needs to be uh, more developed. So that's to me, that, that was um, 
some of the reasons. Of course, he was tired, but I think definitely um, that pressure. And, and he said at the end, uh, honestly, he was relieved, relieved that this whole thing was over. Um, I'm not sure how I would have reacted if he would have won that match, but I think relief definitely was um, the main emotion that he, that he felt. Now, everyone is asking this question. What's going to happen with Djokovic? Um, how is he going to recover from the biggest loss of his career? Well, I mean, we cannot know. I think we can only make hypotheses. People say, oh, he's going to be devastated. Oh, he's going, he's going to lose. Oh, he's never going to win a Grand Slam again. Well, Djokovic proved us from time to time that time and time again, that he's very good at recovering and very good at coming back stronger. And one of the things that from the past we learned from Djokovic is that, again, and, and he, he, did, he did several uh, several things. The first is that right away he recognized Medvedev's victory, didn't look for any excuses, said he was the better player. Yes, I could have done better, but gave him full credit. So that, that's uh, something that you want to do when you are a tennis player or an athlete and you have to um, recover from one of a, on a very, uh, how can I say, a very devastating loss. So that's number one, accepted defeat. Accepted that, okay, you lost. Don't try to find excuses. Don't say that it's because you went to the toilet. It's because of this. No, okay, gave full credit. That's a way to move on mentally. The pain will still be here. I'm not saying that uh, you're going to forget about it, but that's the number one thing to do. And that's what he did right away. And then looked for positives. So that's, you know, what people say. Oh, okay. Well, he said that, uh, you know, being happy that the crowd supported him. That's bull. That's BS. Because uh, I'm sure he was upset. Well, and also you see Djokovic is fake. Again, and the, the whole Djokovic bashing was, you know, again on. But for me... It was not so much about looking fake or pretending. It's, again, it's a way looking for positives so that you can move on more quickly. Oh, okay. And, and that's what he did. He was very eager to do that. Okay, how can I move on? I'm looking for positives. So that's number two thing that you want to do. And then where Djokovic has been really great at and what I'm pretty sure he will do is finding objectives always redefining his motivation. Why is he playing? Where, you know, that's why I was saying that Osaka needs to do that. Djokovic is really good at it. He's able to always find the objectives and find bigger objectives. What do you do when you lose a Grand Slam? He still has this this uh, quest uh, of being the, the GOAT, winning the most Grand Slams. And I think this is what he's going to fully focus on uh, over the next couple of weeks and um, and months. That's it for me, guys. I hope you enjoyed that episode. I think there was so much to to cover. But um, in the part two, stay tuned because we are going to talk about uh, Medvedev and Emma Kanu's mental strategies, how these two players were able to win uh, the US Open, what they use, what, what are their strengths, and what how can you use them? So stay tuned, and I hope you enjoyed that episode. Share it with a friend. Don't forget to subscribe. And I will see you. I will talk to you next time. Bye.